It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Inside Sources. sources. Behind-the-scenes experience in Washington and around the world. Here's the opinion page editor of the Deseret News, Boyd Matheson, on KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. Welcome back, everyone. This is Boyd Matheson, opinion editor at the Deseret News. Great to be with you on the, an extended edition of Inside Sources with you all the way till 3 o'clock today and a lot of ground to cover, as always. Uh, we'll con- continue to watch the developments uh, coming out of El Paso. Uh, President Trump is currently uh, en route. Uh, Say route or route? <laughs> in route to uh, El Paso, Texas today. Uh, he's been in Dayton, Ohio. He uh, went to the hospital there. He met with uh, first responders and uh, victims of families, survivors, uh, and a host of others, and uh, was fairly low-key coming away from that. Uh, no speech there in Ohio. Uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, looks like he's just arriving in El Paso right now. And oh no, actually, that's from earlier this morning. Sorry, uh, he is still uh, on his way to El Paso. So we'll continue to monitor and follow that as we move along today. Uh, and again, we're continuing our call for the president to convene the vice president, the speaker of the house, the minority leader uh, in both house and Senate and uh, give him 21 days to uh, come up with some real solutions that they can present to the country uh, or explain why they simply cannot lead. Uh, so I think that's the uh, call for the day today. Uh, I want to shift gears just a little bit. As as we talk about all of these things, these mass shootings, uh, we've been talking about poverty. The Democrats held their debate last week uh, in Detroit, Michigan, a city that's been broken down and abandoned and is now trying to rebuild. And so I wanted to go back today. I had the chance to interview Tim Carney, uh, who is uh, with the Washington Examiner, And uh, Tim is, again, one of those great thinkers uh, who's looking beyond just the politics of it all and trying to figure out what is the what is the human component to this and what is the society, the community portion of this whole program. Uh, He had a book come out about six months ago. Uh, It is called Alienated America, Why Some Places Thrive While Others Collapse. Uh, great title, Alienated America, Why Some Places Thrive While Others Collapse. And so I asked him, uh, because this was really a journey kind of book uh, for Tim Carney, and so I asked him about the journey. What is it? What did he learn? Uh, what did he discover about America and the American dream? Is it even still alive and possible? And why are some of these con- communities actually thriving? Why so many others are absolutely collapsing? It started for me as I'm a political journalist, so it's a story that starts in Iowa in a pub in Des Moines where I met a a couple that was, they were, they worked at the, at the university there. I mean, not in Des Moines, in Iowa City, they worked at the university there. And the woman told me she was from Orange City. And I tried to figure out what the Orange and Orange City stood for. And it it stood for the the Dutch heritage. And sure enough, I Mm. looked up the numbers and half of this town claims Dutch ancestry. 
And she explained how, as a kid, she wore clogs marching down the street past Windmill Square. And this is in Iowa. In Iowa, wow. Not in (laughs) Netherlands. um, For the Tulip Festival. And so this was like a Simpsons episode making fun of a bunch of Dutch people living out in middle America. And when I went out there, there was a couple things that come. That one, yes, this was a very Dutch place. But two, while uh, Trump was in the top two in polls in the Iowa caucuses, he did not have a lot of support there. But then I started trying to figure out what made this place tick. And I found all sorts of people talking about how tightly knit the community was there. And sure enough, politically, Trump ended up bombing in uh, in Orange City and in that county. Um, but then I became obsessed with looking at these Dutch places. And I you know, visited Western Michigan. And I went to a town in Wisconsin called Oostburg. And there I finally realized what should have been very obvious when I was sitting at the counter at a diner and the people came pouring in from the the 9 a.m. service at First Christian Reform Church and then the 9.30 at First Presbyterian and then the 9.45 at Christian Reform Church of America. And I mean, so they just, it was this immense, tightly knit community of churches that were so much more robust than the average church out there in America. And I started to realize that the only real middle-class places I could find in America that still had really strong, tight-knit communities were ones that had incredibly strong churches. And of course, I visited you a few months later out there in Salt Lake City, where you see this uh, written very clearly across, across the whole state and across many parts of the country, where the strong churches are the core of strong communities, which otherwise in middle class and working class America are very rare. Yeah, I think that's so fascinating, um, and and all the different places that that you went, and the different groups that you uh, took a took a real look at, um, and even recently you you talked about a, a comparison, I think, between uh, Chevy Chase and and uh, maybe it was the one in Wisconsin, Hoosberg, um, yeah, Hoosberg, yeah, uh, in in terms of the the connection, uh, and and currently it's a connection to Trump, but I think there's also sort of a broader thing of in, in these tight communities or these communities that have robust civil society, uh, elections are less consequential to their lives because government's less consequential in their lives. Is that is that where this all comes? Yeah, that's, that's definitely right. That if you, and so you, you mentioned Chevy Chase, and that you might have heard about that when Brett Kavanaugh was in the news. It's uh, a very wealthy and it's a left-leaning, very heavily Democratic uh, village right outside of D.C. It's here in Montgomery County, Maryland, where I live. But it's uh, the... <laughs> One mistake some of my conservative Christian friends make is assuming that the wealthy elite liberals all are these decadents, like, I don't know, living as swingers and, and doing pot or something like that. But no, they're, they're all living the conservative life of finishing school, getting a job, getting married, having kids and staying involved in their kids' lives, and building these strong institutions of civil society. So the village of Oostburg, the village of Chevy Chase are very different in some ways, but they're the same sort of institution. That's one reason they have, well, very different politics in some ways, very similar politics because, so I studied classics at, at St. John's College in Maryland, and so I'm into the Greek roots of words. And politics, the old, the Greek word politike might be best translated as sort of the public things, the shared things, the things mm-hmm. that are out there in the public square. And for a lot of people, for someone like me, our politics is 
our involvement in a, uh, a youth sports league. It's what right. we're doing with our swim club. It's what we're doing in our, our neighborhood association. We're involved in these public things that have nothing to do with national elections that aren't showing up on CNN and Fox News. But if you don't have those sort of middle levels of society, those little platoons that you're part of, then the only politics you're going to have are going to be these national scale ones. And so the stakes are going to be so much higher. Yeah. And, and is it true then that uh, everyone always likes to quote Tip O'Neill and, you know, all politics is local, but it seems like we've sort of flipped that in the, you know, with all of the national media and the instant access to information through the Internet. Uh, it almost seems like this this deterioration of that that connected tissue, the, the thick institutions, as, as you describe them, because that is waning, then all you do have is the all politics is national instead of local. Well, that's right. And I think that this manifest itself um, on the left and on the right. Um, Bernie Sanders and Occupy Wall Street are the examples I give in Alienated America about the, on the left, where it's at first it seemed that these people didn't have any substance to me. I said, what, what are the issues you care about? And they kept saying, oh, well, it's about the, the big guys are controlling Washington. And I say, okay, great. But what are they doing with their control that you don't like? And they were telling me at Occupy Wall Street, oh, they're keeping out the voices of the regular guy. And I was trying to get to the bottom. Okay, your voices are kept out. They have all the power. They're in the smoke-filled room. You're locked out. What do they do in that room that you dislike, hoping they say bailouts or tax cuts right. or something? And, but they didn't. They just said, oh, well, they refused to reform campaign finance. And so what <laughs> seemed like a meta-politics, I mean, I realized was uh, – fundamental politics. There are a lot of young people at Occupy Wall Street at Bernie Sanders rallies who the main thing they wanted was the ability to flex their political muscle. And this is a good thing. This is what we're supposed to do, shape the world around us. And I get to do it through uh, my parish, my workplace, uh, my, my kids' swim club, my boys' schools, my girls' schools. I get to flex my political muscle in all sorts of ways without, before I even step foot into anything doing with national politics. But if you don't even know about these, if you don't even think about these more human-level institutions, you look to the national level. And that's why I think it, you could predict both Sanders' support and Trump's support by looking for signs of alienation in various places around the country. Oh, I think that's uh, it's there's so many things to unpack there. And we're going to continue our conversation with Tim Carney, Alienated America, uh, when we come back. So we're going to step aside. Stay with us here on KSL News Radio. I am Boyd Matheson, opinion editor at the Deseret News here on KSL News Radio. We'll be right back. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story the struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow the letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Inside Sources with Boyd Matheson on KSL News Radio. Welcome back, everyone. This is Boyd Matheson, opinion editor at the Deseret News. Thanks for joining us on Inside Sources today. We're going to continue my conversation with Tim Carney from the Washington Examiner and author of the uh, new book, Alienated America. Uh, really explores why some communities thrive and some are suffering and crumbling. And uh, as we continue my conversation with Tim, uh, it's one of those interesting conversations for me to look at this idea that in a hyper-connected world, uh, we often end up as part of the lonely crowd. We're very disconnected despite all of the hyper-connectivity of our technology. And uh, that seems to be increasing and I asked him, is this really the genesis of all of our problems? Is this disconnectedness? I think there's lots of factors. And again, everybody, Robert Putnam wrote about this in 2000, and some a lot of the data still stands that everybody is a little less connected than we used to be. Mm-hmm. And certainly technology is a huge part of it. That These things that connect us to hundreds and thousands of friends makes our real-life friendships a little bit shallower. It would be one explanation. But then I do think that there are particular afflictions for the working class and the middle class that make them even more disconnected, more deinstitutionalized, and more alienated. Mm. And a a lot of it is that a lot of places, if they didn't already have an incredibly thick network of uh, civil society, mostly meaning church, but if they didn't have it, then when things took an economic downturn, there was nothing to catch them, and communities sort of fell apart. This is what I saw in Fayette County, Pennsylvania, but it's different than in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh also suffered from the steel mills, but the rural places outside of Pittsburgh are collapsed while the city of Pittsburgh is doing fine, and I think it's because they had they had the, the industrialists who set up these institutions, these cultural, artistic, local institutions, parks. They had these neighborhoods, you know, the Italian Catholic neighborhood the Jewish neighborhood of Squirrel Hill, all these very close local human level things, they help places suffer, uh, come through downturns, while places that don't have a, a strong uh, set of institutions there, there there's nothing to catch the people and they fall. So, so let's talk about that in terms of, of social capital. Um, I know that's a, an area that you, you dive into regularly uh, and, and clearly as, as part of your work on the book. Um, for, for the average person, what does, that really, what does that really mean? What's the real definition of social capital? Where is it working and, and how do we really apply it on a bigger scale? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a great question because sometimes sociologists, uh, my friends at AEI and on Capitol Hill use these terms, which are good terms. Yes, but- <laughs> they can sound too abstract. And so the the example I use in the book is when my daughter was in the hospital or a one-year-old. And so my wife and I are rushing back and forth to a hospital that's about 40 minutes away. We don't want to leave her unattended, so we're having to sort of tag team at the hospital. We've got six kids, so there's five other kids sitting at home. So in, in some ways, you could almost think of this as an enormous expense. What if we had to hire a babysitter? What if we had to order takeout every night because we couldn't cook dinner? But instead of spending our actual money on it, we drew on our reserves of social capital and um, friends just volunteered to come and watch our kids. Friends in the carpool, that we have a carpool, that we have real connections and that people know what's going on in our life without us even having to tell them. So the carpool would pick our kid up even if it was our turn to drive, even if we were supposed to drop them off at their house. There was all these things that had immense value to us 
and that it, because of our connections to parishes and my workplace and other institutions, these things of immense value that were sort of sitting there like an insurance policy, we drew on them when we needed it. Similarly, it's not just in, in the case of an emergency, but also just sort of, I use the example of the, the t-ball and baseball teams that I started. I've been able to go to somebody at my parish and say, hey, I want to do a t-ball team. Here's the things I would need. Do you know anybody who could hook me up with that? And sure enough, somebody grooms the infield. Somebody else tells me where to get some equipment. Somebody gives me the email list to blast out and recruit all the kids. All of that stuff has real value. You could imagine spending money on it. But we have it for sort of zero monetary cost because we are plugged into these institutions and they provide us with these real valuable things for these social connections. Uh, I want to hit for a minute uh, one other component to social capital, uh, and that is uh, relating to upward mobility. Uh, your uh, your mm-hmm. your still colleague. We still get to call him colleague for a little while, right? Uh, with Arthur Brooks. Yeah. You know, he likes to talk about it in terms of you know. So often we look at those in poverty uh, as as you know liabilities to be managed as opposed to you know human assets, human potential uh, to be developed. How does social capital play into that upward mobility component? Because really, that is the at the essence of the American dream is the ability to uh, to climb a little higher to. Pursue Pursue your version uh, of the dream. Uh, how does social capital play into that? So, uh, first of all, there's numbers on this that really caught my eye and were one of the things that spurred the book. Raj Chetty is a, a researcher who wanted to see, he saw how uneven upward mobility was in the country, that it sort of, it seemed not to be getting worse, but if you look in a place like Charlotte, North Carolina, that area, it really was pretty bad. Someone starting in the lowest quintile had almost a 0% chance of getting up to the, the top one, and there's a high chance of doing worse than, uh, than your father. While uh, San Jose and Salt Lake City both had very high upward mobility relative and absolute. And so he tried to figure out controlling for all sorts of factors, doing uh, brilliant regression analysis, and said the two most important things were the percentage of intact families in an area and the uh, the measures of social capital that they had, which included volunteering, uh, charitable giving, number of organizations, number of churches, that all of those institutions seem to objectively, empirically do it, uh, provide upward mobility. So why is that? I think a big part of it is just sort of a great exposure and mixing of different income and education levels. So much of the country is very, we're much less segregated by race than we used to be. We're much more segregated by income and education status. But I also think it's more than that. I think it's the sense of purpose that comes with being plugged into something. If you belong to a an organization, a secular, religious, volunteer, even a, just a strong, tight-knit workplace, you're going to be called on and people are going to say, hey, Boyd, we need you to do this. And that fact of being needed that we take for granted that sometimes some of us in elite and religious circles uh, think we're, we're called on to do a little too much. There's a lot of people in the country who don't feel needed, and I think, but I'm not a psychiatrist, so I can't prove this. I think that that is a huge thing that keeps people from being able to climb the ladder if they just look around themselves and they feel like they're pointless. Uh, I want to play play off of that a little bit because you, you mentioned uh, the institutions around that, and you, and you mentioned in the book just the indispensability of, of institutions. And, and we live in this time where, uh, again, national media, 
members of you know Congress kind of abdicating their authority. You know, all of these things seem to be eroding the trust of the American people in in institutions in in big government but it's it's flashing over yep. into other institutions and sadly i think we're losing trust in one another uh, all the way down to the community and the individual level that's right i mean social trust is such an incredibly valuable thing and life just becomes so much better if you implicitly trust your neighbors and they trust you think about the ease i think about like you know leaving your kids' bikes on the front lawn. It's a lot easier than having to lock them up in the shed. And that's a a real big deal. And a big part of it is, yeah, as our attention gets taken away from what's close at hand and put onto the the national stuff, stuff that we have no control over, what the special counsel investigation is going to turn up what the what the tax rates are going to be um all these things that we have no control over then we lose uh sort of connection to the people around us and then and then social trust uh diminishes and then life just becomes a lot harder and i i mean i use a little image of the the kids bikes on the front yard but you can imagine all sorts of things just um whether your kids are allowed to run around and play, whether you can borrow something, lend something to somebody, uh, just show up and visit a friend, all of those things that sometimes seem just kind of nice or even quaint are uh, have incredible value. And that the, the more that those become harder, the more that social trust decays, just the poorer our lives become in, in ways that might not show up immediately on sort of dollars and cents, but certainly do in quality of life. That's my uh, good friend Tim Carney, author of Alienated America, Why Some Places Thrive While Others Collapse. We'll break it down a little bit more when we come back. This is Boyd Matheson on Inside Sources on KSL News Radio.